and welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. What is the difference between sensory processing disorder and pathological demand avoidance, and how do they intersect? I'm going to talk about this question. I sort of can't believe that I haven't done a podcast episode or a live about this because sensory is probably the lens that I understand the most in terms of if we're thinking through like ADHD, autism, sensory, pathological demand avoidance, anxiety, etc. So today I'm going to talk about the difference between sensory and PDA. So I want to start with a story to illustrate this for you. And I'm going to show you the difference between my two sons, one of whom, Cooper, who's almost nine, is PDA and has a lot of sensory differences and sensory integration challenges. And William, who's five, who is not PDA, however, does have sensory sensitivities and sensory differences. So the reason I thought about this was because last Sunday I was driving my younger son William home from his soccer practice and he was playing this like zombie thing on his iPad and it's a new app that he's learning and so he was having to, you know, make effort to learn the game and I was listening to a Tara Brock talk on Generous Heart, right? She's a Buddhist practitioner and I listen to her talks often on the radio in the car and normally my younger son doesn't mind if I'm listening to music or, or news or something in the background, but he says, mama, the girl talking makes it harder. And I understood what he was talking about, like the complexity of sound and this other thing going on in the background, which is Tara Brock, is making it hard for me to play my game. So I turned it off, right? I was like, oh, no problem. Thanks for telling me, which brought two things to mind. A, how far I've come with my PDA son and be how different the sensory experience of my two sons is. So first of all, it made me think about my PDA son Cooper when he was five and how I could not, when we were driving, I could never have the radio on. I could never talk about things. I couldn't turn a corner too fast because the proprioceptive would set off his threat response where like he didn't know where his body was in space. He just had this really intense sensory experience, but it was very fluctuating. So for example, the sound of my younger son playing when he was like one would be too much like little Legos clinking together he would say ah and scream if he stepped on a piece of oatmeal on the ground because my at the time baby would eat in his high chair he would start gagging and vomit or if he smelled a banana being opened in the kitchen he was so sensitive to it he would start gagging this is my older son and we would have to have all the lights off in the living room when he would be watching the television, etc. And some of these things are still present, but the difference between my two boys is just for my PDA son, the sensory experience was is really fluctuating and very much impacted by the point at which his cumulative nervous system activation is in his system. So how stressed his system is versus a more consistent sensory experience. So for example, my younger son, 
he always had trouble with baths, right? So we were working with an occupational therapist when we still lived in Washington DC area. And we took a sensory integration approach with somewhat of an exposure underlying approach, which was, you know, we start in the kitchen with a baby bathtub and we just let him play in it, right? We're not even expecting him to get in a bathtub. We're just having him interact with it with like signals of safety. He's putting his hands in the bath and the bath toys. And it was over the course of months that we like slowly, slowly, slowly exposed him. And then we got him into the baby bathtub, but he could get right out. And like ultimately with slow exposure over time, he got quote used to the sensory experience of the bath right and that is an example of like pretty consistent and pretty traditional like sensory integration approach to getting used to a sensory experience so that it can be integrated right so that worked with my younger son and he also is very consistent with like loud sound i want to put on headphones when you're doing the blender grinding your coffee etc for my pda son this is not the case like any type of exposure or like we're gonna do this consistently so little by little you're gonna get used to something immediately triggers that stronger drive which is the perception of like you're trying to make me do this you're above me i don't have autonomy therefore threat and when the nervous system reacts to the perceived threat it actually makes sensory experiences more intense right so I use this story to illustrate this topic because it demonstrates that both of them have sensory intense experiences. Both of them, quote, could be qualified sensory processing disorder, but it's very different when it is mediated through the nervous system experience of the PDA neurotype, okay? So let me start with a bigger picture like bird's eye view from all my experience working with hundreds of families, all of whom have PDA children and teens. So there's generally three starting points that I've observed in terms of like what parents think is going on with their child or teen. So with externalized PDAers, which is generally like more of a fight flight response, more external behavior, you know, more of that like defiant oppositional talking back controlling behavior. If they're extremely social and like high masking, they're often put into the category of initially sensory processing disorder, which is where we started. Okay. Versus if they, you know, if they're not as high masking and if they're more obviously struggling in school settings or with the grandparents or in therapeutic settings, they might be categorized not incorrectly, but maybe only partially as ADHD or autistic. Okay, so those are the two starting points for the more externalized, whereas with the more internalized, more freeze pathway, not as defiant or oppositional, you might have a child who's initially categorized or even a tween or teen as very high, high anxiety, a highly sensitive child or OCD. Okay, so these are just patterns I've observed, but we're gonna be going through the SPD pathway, which is where my family started. Okay, so let's talk about our journey with P SPD and some of the paradoxes that we observed and that you might have observed or be observing with your child currently. So for example, my son, one of the main struggles that he had was a basic needs struggle, which is eating 
right? He increasingly stopped eating when he was around four and a half and he wouldn't eat, right? It was very distressing. So we started feeding therapy in a play-based setting. We did the SOS approach, which is like 32 steps to get to the point where you're actually putting food in the mouth, where the child is putting food in their mouth. And it really just starts with like, we're in the same room as, you know, a saltine. (laughs) And like, we started with like smashing saltines with hammers and making art with glue and saltines, right? So it's like very gentle, but it's still exposure based. Okay, so we immediately made a lot of traction where my son would, you know, engage with a bridging food, right? So let's say we had, he only ate Lay's potato chips. And so now we're trying like wavy chips with a little bit different sensory experience, similar taste, but like maybe avocado oil instead of like canola oil, right? And he would immediately start eating those. And so he was quickly expanding and through the sensory lens, it was like the OT was like, oh, he's making such good progress, right? And he was, except he had this pattern where he would drop a food. Once he would expand into another one, he would drop another one. So he's always staying in this small band of processed food, right? And what was confusing was if you're only looking at it through the sensory logic, the logic is around getting used to flavors, textures, the way it feels in your mouth, the way that it smells. And so when you bridge to another food, the theory or logic behind the sensory lens is like, oh, you've added another food and now it's there. You're used to it, right? What was happening through the logic of a PDA neuroception was okay, I've added this other food, I've decided to add this other food, but maybe I perceived a little bit of pressure, even if it was like subconscious of like, there's this expectation that I'm adding foods. And so there's an activation in the nervous system. And so what does the child do to get back to a place of safety? Exerting some control or equalizing behavior over the situation. So it's like, okay, I added one, but now I'm deciding to drop one. Not consciously, but just reflexively. So it was like this odd pattern. And it's not just my son who has exhibited some of these unusual patterns patterns when they're going through a sensory or even a behavioral lens where it's like, oh, we're adding food. Now they got used to this texture. Now we're bridging and it actually was not making progress. Okay. So that's one of the very first things that a very smart occupational therapist said, you know, this is really unusual. This is not the pattern that we see through a sensory integration and SOS feeding lens. Okay. So that was like a seed planted, but at the time we didn't understand. Additionally, like something I observed was how inconsistent my son's reactions were to certain stimuli, right? So like sometimes sounds would not bother him at all. And sometimes it would set him off into like screaming and growling, right? And I could never identify like, what was it about this loud sound that like tipped him over into this fight flight response, which at the time looked like a like a tantrum or defiance and why didn't it go off the next day or when he's in school or when he's with the grandparents right like how can you mask something if it's a sensory experience that's setting you off right versus my younger son who's like loud sound is always the same it's always like i'm going to turn on the blender honey here are your headphones right and so this was another confusing pattern or paradox and then we started to observe things that weren't just 
confusing or paradoxes, well, they were paradoxes, but they were even more concerning because it seemed like some of the sensory strategies that we were engaging in to support his regulation were actually making his regulation, in quotes, for those of you listening on the on the podcast, worse. Okay, and this is where we start to see why it's so important to think through the logic of a PDA brain, even if we're also considering sensory differences and sensory processing disorder, because sensory strategies were starting to make things worse. Okay, so at first, these were small things like, okay, I'm going to buy this fidget spinner. I'm going to buy him compression socks and tagless shirts. I'm going to get him a weighted blanket. And I went all in in the like, I have these tools that are going to fix or support his sensory differences, right? And often the novelty would be there at first and he would be into them or use them, but then he would, you know, would lose its novelty. And through a PDA lens, I now understand that it was like becoming an internal demand of like, there's this expectation that I use this, therefore threat response, which leads to avoidance. But it was also me being like, no, but like put on your compression shirt. We're going to wear this weighted vest and we're going to put on your... (laughs) you know, your weighted blanket. And it was like, even those sensory strategies, he would start to react to them. And I'm sure some of you have seen this when your child's like, ah, it's too loud. And you offer headphones and they won't take them because we have an energy and an expectation around the use of the sensory tool that their brain perceives as mom's putting herself above me, trying to make me wear these headphones, threat response which leads to, as we know, avoidance and resistance, right? That fight flight response. And so this is the pattern that parents start to see of like, this doesn't make any sense. They, they're they having the sensory response, but they won't use the tools. And then I'm gonna share another story. And I know other families who've experienced this as well. During the pandemic, the early pandemic, we were still working through the sensory integration and regulation lens. And my husband was like starting work late. So he and I could set up an obstacle course and for a half an hour like encourage him to run through it and like get his heavy work and get his movement and get his sensory input so that he would be regulated for the rest of the day. But what was happening, the energy of our expectation, the pressure we were putting on him to do the obstacle course was actually offsetting any benefits and and overriding it because he was starting to refuse, right? Because there was his dad and me above him making him do it, not in an aggressive way, just like, come on, you can do it. Like, let's do this. Mom and dad will do it with you. And the longer we did it, the more he resisted, right? And the more we pushed, the more times his fight, flight, or freeze response is activating in his nervous system and getting him close to the threshold of tolerance, which is when we see impact on basic needs and constant fight, flight behavior, equalizing and avoidance, okay? But at the time, we didn't understand this. And this is is why I'm sharing it with you so that you don't waste <laughs> so much time and have so much confusion and self-loathing and all the things that so many of us experience because we think we're doing the right thing and we are in a sense of like the right thing is to try and support your child to be well but we're doing it through a lens that's actually counterindicative to what their nervous system needs. Okay. And then finally, I'll just use one more example because I've worked with clients for whom this has been the case and I just want to mention it. So we did a listening therapy called the FOCUS program, which is to support 
Um, it's often used with ADHD kids, but it's like a listening therapy. And we had done the safe and sound protocol, which I saw benefits from when he was young, like five. And so I was like, great, let's do the other listening therapy. This is like pre-PDA awareness. And so I had my mindset. I'm like, okay, we're going to do all these exercises and we're going to do it 30 minutes a day. And I invested so much money and time in this technology, which I'm sure is very helpful for certain children. And I, I'm not speaking against this therapeutic modality I'm just illustrating that like I got attached to it and I was like okay this is gonna fix him and the more we did it and the more I focused on making him do it the more his nervous system activation increased and the more he was having meltdowns and the harder it was to eat and sleep and toilet and all the things right and I've had many other families who you know with well-meaning occupational therapists who are like no, let's just keep going with this. Let's just keep going. Like we need the sensory integration. We need to use this tool. They need to get used to it. And that's actually working against the child's regulation, right? And and so what we want to do is rather than thinking of things by in a binary way of like it's sensory processing disorder or PDA, we just want to understand our lenses and our prioritization, right? So often because sensory processing disorder is better understood than PDA, most people, including parents, including myself, including well-meaning therapists are gonna first put on their sensory processing lens and work on sensory and then think about other things like nervous system, autonomy, equality, and all of that. And that's fine for a lot of neurodivergent children. However, for PDA kids, we always need to put our nervous system autonomy and equality PDA lenses on first, because if we're not prioritizing autonomy above the sensory, we're going to get ourselves in a situation where it makes things worse. It, it undermines connection. It undermines trust. It undermines their nervous system, right? And that's the example I gave with the obstacle course. There's nothing wrong with obstacle courses. Sometimes we do them still because my son says, hey, can we build an obstacle course rather than me being like, we're going to do this every day so you can regulate your nervous system. So that's the switch that we want to always make. And, and I have to come back to it also when we're doing sensory stuff or in an occupational therapy setting. It has to be, you know, if, if he's feeling pressure or he's feeling like the skills are something that he has to learn, he's going to avoid and resist and, sh and shut it down. Right? So we're always coming back to that autonomy, equality, getting to make decisions, having control of the session for the child in, in, in a strewed environment so that we're prioritizing that first. And then I just want to mention that, again, this isn't binary, right? Like sensory is super, super important for PDA kids. I've been reading, rereading polyvagal theory because it's so technical and I'm not a neuroscientist, but like one of the new things about polyvagal theory, which only came out in 2011, which by the way is only 12 years and very young for like an academic theory. One of the things that's different about how polyvagal theory understands the nervous system is that it's bi-directional, right? So it's not just our brain sending signals to our organs through the vagal pathways. It's also 80% of it from the organs up to our brain is coming from the sensory experience, okay? So the sensory experience 
of the PDA child or teen will fluctuate dramatically with nervous system activation, okay? And as I said, my younger son, super consistent versus my older son who, when he's regulated, may be able to tolerate certain textures of food. He may be willing to try certain things. He may be fine with the lights on. He may be fine with me doing the coffee blender. He might even let me listen to the radio while he's reading or doing something on his iPad in the car, which was totally unheard of when he was in nervous system burnout, right? But it fluctuates and it's an indicator of what's going on beneath the surface. And I just want to tie it into the nervous system again, because even though I'm not PDA identifying, I do have a very sensitive nervous system. I've been diagnosed with panic disorder and it's something I struggle with and work on, right? So when I've done, for example, EMDR therapy or the safe and sound protocol for myself, which is like sensitizing you as you reprocess a traumatic memory or as you, you know, work on some of this nervous system stuff, I always notice my own sensory experience gets super heightened afterwards. Why? Because my nervous system is working, right? Like it's it's being taxed or there's stress on it. So every sound is super intense to me. I can like hear the sound of lights buzzing. I like I'm more particular with eating. I make my husband, like when I wash the dishes, take out the gunk from the sink. I get really cold easily, right? So it's like, even though my root cause for the nervous system activation is not the perception of losses of autonomy and equality, the nervous system mechanism is the same in the sense that it interacts with the sensory experience. So if there's one thing you take away from today's live about sensory processing disorder and PDA is that the main switch you want to make is just what lens you're viewing things through first, right? So we're not pushing sensory strategies, therapy, or approaches in lieu of autonomy first because it will counteract what you're trying to do. I will leave it at that. I hope that was helpful to you guys and I will see you again soon. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, Join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.